Welcome to Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus. And I'm Phyllis Simbler-Miller. Today we're doing a special episode, an episode we would hope never to have to do. We will deal with the shock we are all experiencing on day three since last Saturday when Hamas invaded Israel and slaughtered, raped, wounded and abducted so many Israeli Jews. We will also try to answer some questions about how this could happen. We have our two eminent we have our two eminent guests back with whom we discussed the Yom Kippur war two episodes ago. Michael Berenbaum, PhD and rabbi, is the director of the Sigi Ziering Institute for exploring the ethical and religious implications of the Holocaust and a professor of Jewish studies at the American Jewish University in Los Angeles. He was the executive editor of the new encyclopedia Judaica. And Rick Richman is a resident scholar at American Jewish University and the author of two books on Zionism. Most recently, he published And None Shall Make Them Afraid. His website is www.rickrichmond.net. Michael and Rick, welcome back on our show. Thank you for coming on our show on such short notice. This episode was not planned for, and we are all less prepared than usual. Michael, I have my first our first question to you. Um, what is the emotional impact of what is going on in Israel? The emotional impact um, is simple to describe. There's shock, and then there's outrage. There is also a sense of this should not happen and almost a sense of this could not happen. Um, one of the people I spoke to this morning, we're, we're speaking, we should tell our audience, we're speaking on the third day of the war, which means that um, in three or four days, this may be outmoded, it may not be outmoded, but we're dealing with the knowledge that we have on the third day, we may know more, uh, we certainly will know more later. Uh, this could not happen, this should not happen. By that I mean there was the sense that Israel was caught um, unaware, unprepared, and furthermore, something else happened which we can label by a traditional Jewish label, which is a pogrom. <laughs> a pogrom is essentially the rampaging of people who murder civilians, men, women, and children, who enter their homes, they seem defenseless. And that, in a very real sense, is the antithesis of what Israel was supposed to be. Uh, Israel was supposed to be essentially protection for Jews, and that Jews were not going to be vulnerable, not in this sense, not in this way, and certainly not in their homes, and certainly not in their villages, and certainly not on a holiday, in which they were celebrating, and one of, we see that that almost 250, if not more, of the murders, and I don't want to call them deaths, I want to call them murders. Yes. But 250 of the murders occurred what at a, um, a an all night concert 
for peace in the desert where young people were enjoying themselves. This should not happen, Israel, and one would have imagined it could not happen. Why was Israel caught blind? Why didn't the intelligence have an awareness of this? Why was Israel so um, limited in terms of personnel and um, and military presence on the Gaza Strip, on the Gaza side of the border? The um, wall that was built in excess of a million of a billion dollars, with all sorts of um, technology, which could um, get a. Uh, get a fly, capture a fly coming over, as it were, was breached in 80 places, which means that there was a mistake of, of, of cataclysmic proportions in terms of the protection that it, that it offered um, Israel. This also occurred on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, which meant once again, Israel's enormously talented intelligence was caught blind, and um, we don't yet know, we will someday know, the relationship between the political leadership and whether indeed we connected, Israel connected the dots of the batches of information it had and put it together in a coherent picture. At this point, the Israelis I'm speaking to this includes families, includes military analysts, analysts it includes friends are number one shocked they're dumbfounded as to how it could happen this represents the antithesis of what they thought israel had achieved it's a um, uh, um what shall we say it's a deep wound to their sense of what they thought they knew and what they thought they could depend upon and the scale and scope, I think, for an American audience, we have to understand that if Israel is talking about 800 wounded, we are talking about the equivalent... Eight, wait, 800 murdered. 800, 800 murdered. We're talking about the equivalent of um, essentially uh, if 3,000 were murdered on 911, uh Proportionally for Israel, with 800 murdered, you have to multiply that by 30 times, which is 24,000. So that essentially is is more than seven and a half times the number of people murdered on 911. And we Americans can deeply appreciate the shock, the anger, the fury, the rage. And then the uh, the sense of numbness that sets in. The stories are coming out, and the stories are overwhelming, and they are heartbreaking. They're just heartbreaking. But Rick, so, yeah. you... to to expand a little bit on what Michael just said, uh, to put this in context in terms of a pogrom. As a 21st century pogrom, this is roughly 20 times the size of Kishinev the historic pogrom in the first uh, decade of the 20th century. So it, people have called it the equivalent, the American equivalent of 9-11, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Yom Kippur War, all rolled into one. And 
I agree that Israel was formed um, to deal with situations like this, and there have been failures that are going to generate a commission after this is all over. Um, for the present, I think we, we, we need to emphasize that the way to respond to this is through a unified um, response within Israel, hopefully with a unified response by the United States. And to leave the questions, which are valid questions and will have to be addressed, um, to be addressed not on the third day, which is where we are now with limited information, uh, but after this is hopefully brought to a successful conclusion. The state of Israel was established not to stop anti-Semitism, although some thought it would, uh, but to respond to anti-Semitism so that the Jewish people could do something if anti-Semitism occurred again. And so that we are in the middle of this story. Uh, the next chapter is how Israel responds and how the United States responds in terms of supporting whatever Israel decides to do. Rick, let me pick up on that in one momentary anecdote. Um, we were at a rally last night uh, of the Jewish community of Los Angeles a gathering, it was almost a moment to be together because of the dis. Rick? Ourselves. In 2023, they. And we have the power to defend ourselves. And he received a thunderous ovation at that point. Michael, could you repeat who you said because of the the, the Los Angeles Consul General uh, said in 1939 we were powerless to defend ourselves. They attacked us, and we were powerless to defend ourselves. In 2023, they attacked us, and he didn't have to finish the sentence because we all knew what he meant, the great achievement of Israel is that we now have the power to respond. And the other thing is, from all evidence I've seen, both in the United States and in Israel, divisions have been have been pushed aside. And unity at this point is um, uh, a fundamental commandment. We're unified in mourning for what has been lost and we're unified in outrage at what has occurred. We're unified in concern for the fate of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And one hopes that there will be a government of national unity to reflect that so that we have the broadest accommodation. But everybody has really been feeling a sense of coming together, and we have to build on that. And Rick, let's talk about the American response, because the, the question that we have is, is there going to be unity in America with regard to this? And also, are we going to be equipped, as it were, uh, to give Israel what it needs in the short term? Right. Well, Michael, before we go, before we go into that, let's let's stick a little bit longer uh, with the emotional impact. Uh, so before we go into your great question you you just asked um i know uh quite some some jewish people um in europe in 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 holland uh 
and elsewhere in Europe who literally don't sleep anymore. Um, who, um, and they don't know why exactly uh, since this uh, invasion. Um, so you you mentioned the 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 resonance of the of the pogroms in our collective uh, memory, so to speak, uh, as Jews. Um, what what about why does this make us think of the Holocaust, and is that what keeps us awake? You think? Look, uh, let me begin by talking about different uh, emotionally all attempts to eradicate the Jewish people echo and regurg re re return to the surface the memory of the Holocaust. There are radical differences between it, be between that and the Holocaust. Not emotional, and I'm resisting a little bit about the emotional response, Evelyn, because I think that one has to deal with the emotion, but the policy decisions of the state of Israel and of the Jewish people now have to be ruthlessly rational. Of course. They have to be ruthlessly rational, taking into consideration everything involved. And again, we're going to talk a little bit later about um, the problem of hostages and the way in which the emotional responses to hostages are going to constrain um the responses involved, and that's part of the morality, the decency, and the, the solidarity of the state of Israel. But having said that, let's talk about the differences with the Holocaust, which is not going to allow people to sleep better. But number one is we now have the power to defend ourselves. That's major. Number two, um, the Brandenburg Gate was lit up with the flag of Israel. The Empire State Building was lit up with the colors of Israel. The President of the United States has uh, put aside any differences he had with the Prime Minister of Israel regarding judicial reform and come out strong and solid uh, behind Israel and said Israel will get what it's need. American ships have been moved in a very real way. The Air Force has been transformed in a very, the American Air Force has been transformed in a dramatic way. Uh, there is a certain of solidarity. I have had contact throughout from my Christian friends calling me, contacting me. And in fact, uh, we, we found uh, th this occurred over a Jewish holiday, I normally do not watch television, do not uh, deal with uh, phone calls or anything else. The phone was going off the hook. The television became a necessity. And I found the holiday took a secondary proportion because we're responding. So there are major differences with the Holocaust. That doesn't mean it doesn't echo. It doesn't feel like a burden. It doesn't feel like it's imposing itself uh probably the the one element that we that that it, it concurs with and and let's uh, again say one more thing which is hamas does not have the power 
to do what the Nazis could do. That means we have to exercise the power that we have wisely and sagaciously and powerfully to make sure that there is a, a deterrent value. Let me let me uh, respond with 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 a couple points uh, to what Michael has just said. First of all, it was not just the Brandenburg Gate and the Empire State Building, but the uh, Ten Downing Street uh, also went up with the uh, Israeli flag. So, uh, unlike the Holocaust, where the issue was ignored, uh, there has been great rhetorical support and the beginning of American. Uh, defense support, uh, which obviously did not occur during the Holocaust. Secondly, and, uh, way, and which during Yom, which during Yom Kippur was not guaranteed. There was a period of time in which we didn't know. It means the Yom Kippur War during the Yom Kippur during the Yom Kippur War. It was not guaranteed. So we have we have the precedent of the Holocaust and the precedent of the Yom Kippur War to work with in terms of responding to the current situation. Um, I would emphasize that it's not only Hamas at this point, that one of the things that Israel needs to worry about is the involvement of Hezbollah in the north, the involvement of Islamic Jihad and Hamas on the West Bank, and the possibility that Iran not only will decide, but perhaps um, initiated this or had Hamas initiate this to make it a multi-front war. So one of the problems with Israel's response in the South is that it cannot commit all of its military sources into Gaza, because that may be what Iran and Hezbollah are waiting for in order to initiate the Northern Front. And the hostages are there, and that does complicate the situation. Uh, but we've already seen, at least from the State Department, not from the White House, but from the State Department, Tony Blinken uh, announcing, talking to the uh, to Turkey about a ceasefire and a return of the hostages. That's completely premature, in my opinion, until Israel makes its response. And if the response is simply not to retaliate, but to attempt to get the hostages back, then we're back in the same paradigm that we were before. And one of the emotional responses uh, across the board, I think, in, in Israel and among American defense uh, intellectuals is that this is paradigm shifting. You cannot simply have some bombing for a few days and a ceasefire and negotiations over hostages and go back to the way you were. The, the remarkable thing is that for Hamas, if they don't, if they're not defeated, they win. And for Israel, if it doesn't win, then it's a strategic defeat. And so, and that's the same thing for the United States, by the way. The United States, uh, uh, President Biden said in his in his forceful statement that the whole world is watching. He was warning others who might try to come in on this situation. The whole world is watching the United States as well. And so, therefore. Um, we're in, as I said, on the third day in the middle chapter. The next chapter is the Israeli response, which has, which is a complicated issue for Israel to decide, and in part depends on what kind of support it gets from the United States. What, 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 what can Israel do to save the hostages? We have to say at this moment that Israel can do at this moment very little. 
and that the hostages cloud it because Israel has Michael, I think we're frozen for a minute. It's as if the internet is upset about our topic as we are and is reacting. Evelyn, are you there? Yeah. Please repeat your 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 reply. A, a ceasefire is not only not possible at this moment, it's not desirable at this moment. Hamas cannot have perpetrated what it perpetrated without facing the most serious of consequences imaginable. But Israel has a double-edged problem. Number one, if it goes in with ground forces, it is going to be hand-to-hand -hand combat with what we've seen a cruel and motivated enemy, and they're going to lose um, um, many soldiers' lives, and every Israeli has a son and daughter, a grandson, a granddaughter who is in the military. I've been speaking to my grandnephews who are in the military. Uh, and uh, secondly, um, uh, if it goes in, it has to go in without restraint and without um, uh, understanding that it either accomplishes its full mission at this point or it shouldn't go in because you can't have a half, I'm going to use a word, a half-assed solution at this point uh, to it. So here's an example, and and that it, that's not going to look pretty. And it's not going to look pretty to the international community. It's not going to look pretty at home, and it's not going to look pretty to anybody, but it may be a military necessity. And the hostages then, um, uh, we're not sure how many of these are alive. And we're also not sure what accounting. Some are German citizens, some American citizens, and we're hoping that those governments go full scale in to at least get some information because if those people are able to be visited by um, uh, international sources, then we may be in a better situation to have some sort of information. But they took hostages, not only military, they took women, they took children, they took a three-month-old, they took a grandmother, not exactly, um, uh, and they clearly want to use them as what, uh, uh, as 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 uh, shields. Human shields. As human shields. I think that, that that's the, the ray of hope for the hostages, to answer your question, that Hamas would like to use them as bargaining chips for... Um, concessions or release of Palestinian prisoners or whatever. So they have an interest in keeping them alive and also because they want to use them as human shields. Um, so we can hope that they're alive. We can um, we can hope, I think, that Israel would say that this is not going to end without the release of the hostages. In other words, and by this ending, I mean they've already started to isolate Gaza. They've cut off electricity. They've cut off the border. There are 17,000 jobs that Palestinians from Gaza have in Israel. They were talking before this of increasing it to 34,000. Those jobs have been cut off. 
access to other things can be cut off to Gaza unless and until the hostages are returned. To me, that's a better way to proceed than to to, to negotiate, which is in effect a strategic loss right there. So that's the way I, I you know. Uh, and Rick, the, Rick, let's stress one more thing that, that the general press does not stress. The isolation of Gaza is a two-front isolation. It's an isolation by the Israelis, and it's an isolation by the Egyptians because Hamas is linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is regarded as an ally, as the opposition to the government of Egypt. And Egypt's isolation of um, of uh, of Gaza is no less intense than the Israeli isolation, though nobody ever mentions it. I, I, does everyone understand that this is very important because Gaza does share a border with Egypt? And so Michael's saying, hopefully, that we don't have to worry that Egypt's going to help Gaza, correct? I'm saying something else about it. I'm saying that the, the, when the press begins on humanitarian grounds to speak about the isolation of Israel, it conveniently forgets In Gaza. The, the isolation of Gaza. It conveniently forgets that the isolation of Gaza is a two-pronged isolation. It's an isolation by Egypt. It's an isolation by Israel. And in fact, the isolation from Egypt is no less complete than the isolation uh, from Israel. That's been a change, but it's a very important change for us to understand. In um, in a discussion yesterday at the on the Dutch television, um, there were people um, bringing forward that the that that the isolation of Gaza um, was one of the reasons why Hamas is why Hamas is is uh, has invaded and 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 kill has invaded Israel and killed so many Israelis is. Um, could you comment on that? Is that, is that the drive of Hamas? Interestingly enough, that has not been part of Hamas's public statements regarding right before the, this this war or during it. They have cited the Alaska Mosque in Jerusalem. They are not really, in my opinion, interested in the welfare of the people in Gaza. They're interested in claiming leadership of the anti-Israel movement. And that's why they haven't emphasized that. And before this happened, as I said, there were 17,000 uh, Gazans coming into Israel every day for their jobs. They were talking about it going to 34,000. Israel mistakenly thought that Hamas would be satisfied to rule Gaza as long as Israel did not disrupt that rule. And they were very mistaken about that. Uh, obviously, something much more different was being planned. And do and you agree with? Do you agree say, with? Let's also say something else, which we haven't brought in to the equation. Why now? Yeah. And why now is a very important uh, element because why now is the radicals want to disrupt any possibility of normalization between the Israel-Saudi relationship and the furtherance of of um, whatever you want to call it. If not peace, then at least a modus vivendi that allows for commerce and normalization of relationships. Every time in uh, Mideast history, 
when you've had the option for peace, there has also at that moment been a strong response on the part of the radicals to, uh, and and I, I can go across the board and give you example after example on the part of the radicals to dismantle any possibility of that type of normalization. And we have to say, tragically, they've been quite successful at doing that over a period of time. And we have to watch what Saudi Arabia does. That certainly is one of Iran's motivations at this moment. And it's certainly one of the one of the reasons that um, they want to uh, disrupt it, disrupt it. Now, the real issue becomes whether Saudi Arabia's long-term strategic interests, long-term strategic interests, which is to move away from a um, oil solely an oil-based economy to a knowledge-based economy, in which Israel becomes an indispensable pos- uh, partner in that, or a, a an important partner in that, and Israel may also become an important partner in terms of water supply to Saudi Arabia in a world which has experienced enormous drought. So the question becomes whether those long-term strategic interests will take uh, priority over the short-term emotional outrage at what we're about to see. Well, let me just say that I think uh, Saudi Arabia's perception of its long-term interests may depend on what they see happening in the short term in this situation. They're looking at an alliance, effective alliance with Israel and the United States, and if Hamas claims a victory, in effect, over both Israel and the United States, then Saudi Arabia would rationally say, maybe this is not the strong horse uh, we should be tra- attempting to ride. So a lot, it's not simply what Saudi Arabia does, and it, it, it knows its long-term interests. It's already been negotiating this three-part three part alliance. What it needs to look at now is what Israel does, whether Israel's allowed to do it, how the United States supports it, what's the outcome, who is perceived as winning or losing, just as in 1973 with the Yom Kippur War, and that will be the side that Saudi Arabia will choose to join. Let me ask you a question, Rick. Will the Republican disarray in the House which may looks like we may not have a functioning house for a while, will that hamper the American efforts? Well, I think, I'm not sure if it will hamper the American effort because that's probably in the hands of the White House and the Defense Department and the State Department for the time being. What may affect the outcome is uh, is our assistance to Ukraine. If the uh, inability of the House to function because of what's going on with the Speaker uh, means that Ukraine is not supported by the United States, that will have an impact on the thinking of Iran, possibly on the impact of Saudi Arabia, possibly on the impact of the Abraham Accord nations as well. So things are connected here. Uh, you, you can't look at this as a attack from Hamas and a response to Hamas, the geopolitical considerations and consequences are literally worldwide. Let's ask the opposite question as well, Rick. Is there any possibility that the um, attack on Israel by Hamas and um, 
what is going to be required to assist Israel will uh, help the House get its act together, at least to be able to function in the short term, to be able to provide the assistance necessary if the White House has to turn to the Congress. Yeah, we could probably use a unity government in America as well as uh, as well as Israel. Um, but yes, uh, to be more serious in, in responding to you, uh, yes, political developments in the United States are important because we have a history in Syria of not enforcing our red line, of allowing Russia to invade Crimea in, in 2014 without doing anything. Donald Trump did not respond at all to the Houthi, the, the, the Iranian-backed group in Yemen, firing and disabling key oil facilities in Saudi Arabia a couple a few years ago. We didn't respond. And now this, now Ukraine, You're, and people appear to be retiring of supporting Ukraine. All those things have ramifications. Um, and uh, I, I would say that what, what we... The, the key will be what we do with the aircraft carrier, what we do with with resupplying Iron Dome, which has limited resources. And there have been already several thousand rockets. There's 100,000 rockets that Hezbollah has in the north. There has to be an emergency program, as was done in 1973, to support Israel in terms of the material it needs to respond to what very well may be coming. Although I think we have to say that that American shipments are on the way as we speak. Yes. And, and, the other, and the other thing is that that we also have a second situation which is different, and ironically not anticipated quite for this, which is America has prepositioned equipment in Israel. That's that, what I was going to ask. I that, that can be used, but that was essentially, and the reason it was pre-positioned Israel is because they regard Israel as a safe place to keep their um, uh, our, our American ammunition in case it's needed. Uh, I'm not sure that they anticipated that it might be needed by Israel. Let me touch on two other points as we're coming uh, close. Um, and both of these are speculation, but since you and I always have these conversations, um, let's ask about uh, two elements. Uh, does Israel go in on the ground? It's Israel what? Does Israel go in on the ground? Oh, well, I wouldn't presume to give uh, operational advice to Israel. What I, what I would say is that they have said that they are going to eliminate Hamas's ability to threaten Israel in the future and its control over Gaza itself. They've announced that. Once you announce it, you have to achieve it. And better, better well achieve it. And the question the question is whether that is um an achievable goal. And one of the issues with that, which you and I both agree upon, is that that creates a tremendous vacuum. And the vacuum cannot be assumed by the uh, by the um, uh, Palestinian Authority, which is corrupt, dysfunctional, and uh, is all awaiting the uh, death of an 87-year-old chain smoker. Yeah. 
Well, people people have 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 speculated about Israel removing Hamas and asking the UN to take over, or some fashion like that. There's been speculation that what Israel will want to do is have a no man's land of a certain portion of northern Gaza to stop this from happening again. Uh, what what we know is you can't eliminate Hamas from the air. You can bomb a lot of sites. So to achieve Israelis, Israel's objectives, there probably needs to be a ground invasion. And uh, and if that is what they decide to do, uh, a lot will, it'll be important whether the United States supports it, only supports it for a few days, tires after a week and says we ought to have negotiations or a ceasefire. Um, a lot depends on not just Israel and its own operational conclusions. Second question, speculation, then I want to get to uh, action items uh, and then we'll wrap we'll wrap up. Um, do you think Israel's going to come in with a government of national unity? Well, they're already talking to Netanyahu, Lapid, and Gantz's credit. Both sides have said that um, they want a, a, a government of national unity, and they're talking about it. It's uh, it's what was done in 1967, um, and uh, it, to me, it seems obvious that that's what ought to be done. The judicial reform, which really is, a, I, I think, a dead issue anyway, ought to be put aside, and the more important issue of 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 where we are now ought to be addressed on a unified basis, and I predict they they will do that. Let me just tweak that a little bit as an answer. Um, in 67, that happened virtually immediately, and it happened before the war. Correct. It happened before the war, and it happened uh, essentially bring Menachem Begin, who had been anathema to labor leaders, into the government, and uh, that happened quickly. Uh, I'm disturbed by one factor in the negotiation over the unity government, which is they've turned it over to lawyers instead of the three principals coming into the room and saying, let's get this done, what's going to be required, and making a decision. Uh, over the long term, does this, uh, does this uh, wound Benjamin Netanyahu, and does it, um, does it uh, shake uh, his political hold? Uh, it went, well, I, I, long term... Uh, we know what happened to Golda Meir after the 73 war. Um, so this, how, how this turns out, again, I say, you can't, there, there's going to be a commission on how it began. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have enough time to, to discuss all of that. Uh, but how it ends is going to be significant for everybody involved. Um, and I would just mention one other thing uh, to, to hark back uh, to the United States reaction uh, it'll be significant whether this changes the efforts that the Biden administration has been making to achieve some kind of agreement with Iran. At the end of this month, near the end of this month, near the end of this month, uh, the UN resolution restriction on missiles, ballistic missiles being provided to Iran runs out. And one of the things I would say the United States has to do is to make a maximum effort to snap back um the sanctions that were uh, that were supposed to be there if iran did what it has been doing now for months in terms of the jcpoa so a big decision point 
for us in the Americas coming up before the end of this month. It, it may not that may not be achievable because of uh, Russia at this point. And any that, member under the under the JCPOA, anybody, including the Europeans who technically have never violated or withdrawn from the JCPOA, can snap back. So it's the the um, Rick. Let's go and and um, what should we do? What action items do we have um, living in the United States of America at this moment? Uh, what would you appeal for? What would you uh, suggest we do? What actions could be um, very helpful or helpful? Well, as I say, work towards snapping back or initiating new sanctions on Iran, because this, this cannot have been done by Hamas alone. The sophistication, the planning, all of it indicates, I think, to most people that Iran was involved in this. So this has to be a response, not just even to Hezbollah, in addition to Hamas, but we have to rethink our approach over the last couple of years to Iran. And that's key in terms of the ballistic missiles, the uh, resolution that's coming up, but also longer term in terms of American foreign policy. We also have to take, an, uh, you know, we, we have to supply Israel with whatever it needs before it needs it in order to ensure that we don't get into a military situation that's quite dire because we're in the middle of this. Um, and in terms of the emotional reaction, I think it, it, everybody in both countries need to see this as a paradigm shifting event that requires rethinking the old premises that led to it and coming up with something new. And can you make that a bit more concrete, please? Well, I think the the um, Israeli objective of a preventing um, Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon has to be has to replace the idea of a temporary um, uh, a, a temporary slowdown by Iran in addition for sanctions relief. Um, we have to um, shift to supplying everything for an Iron Dome. We have to make sure that we have not simply rhetorical support, which has been very good from President Biden, but more steps to indicate that. Um, there is a credible threat of force if other countries uh, come in or authorize other groups to the north or east of Israel to participate. Um, is there something Jews outside and, and non-Jews outside, individuals outside of Israel, you think can do to support Israel? I, you can I, let, me, let me say, I, I think at this moment for Jewish unity, this is a moment for the Jewish community to come together and to say the old cliche, we are one. The fate of the Jewish people is not something that happens to Israelis or Americans. It happens to the Jewish people in their entirety. It's a moment in which we call forth for solidarity with Israel from the, um, uh, the rest of the world. And uh, in that sense, we'd like to see the clergy of multiple religions speaking out. We'd like to see intellectual leaders speaking out. We'd like to see a condemnation of what has taken place. And um, we have to understand, and we'd also like to see in a very basic element, uh, 
the uh, avoidance of, on the other hand, after what we've seen, what this is, there is no on the other hand. This was unprovoked. It was attacking men, women, and children, babies, and grandmothers, attacking them in their homes, slaughtering them ruthlessly, parading uh, prisoners of uh, prisoners were taken hostages uh, in, in the in major cities. This is uh, ruthless. It is um, uh, uh, beyond the pale, and we would hope that there would be condom universal condemnation of this. And uh, this is a moment to support Israel. It's a moment I hope Israel achieves a government of national unity, and I hope the American Jewish community achieves a sense of unity of community with Israel. And I hope our non-Jewish friends reach out in solidarity to us. And Israel has to feel not a sense of isolation, but a sense of um, that the world is with them. So you don't get the sense. Let's go back to the pogrom element. The pogrom, after such ruthless attacks, the Jews felt powerless and isolated. We've seen that we're no longer powerless. We'd like to see that we're no longer isolated and certainly not isolated by our own people, but are not isolated from the world community. And Amen. I would like to say one thing from a point of view of our show, which Evelyn alluded to about individuals, we in America and elsewhere have to be prepared when for example, if Israel goes into a ground war, there will uh, uh, Gaza, there will be civilian casualties more than there are now. We have to be prepared not to fight, not to yell, but to be well enough informed to be able to teach and to educate. So when people say, you know, Evelyn and I are always working on when people say something anti-Semitic to you, well, we have to be prepared that people are going to say pro-Hamas things to us. And, and we need to be able to handle it, not just to say silent, and not to yell, but to literally change the minds and hearts of those people who absolutely do not understand what's happening. I feel very strongly about that. Also to engage people who believe that they do understand what's happening. <laughs> okay, Michael, I'll give you that too. Okay. So, unless you have last thoughts, this has been a very... Uh, Inspiring program, as Evelyn said at the beginning, we wish that we didn't have to have this program, but we really affect, appreciate that Michael and Rick came on basically instantaneous. Uh, so uh, have to, to put up with the fact we had a few internet connect connection problems, but we think this was valuable. We thank Rick and Michael. We thank our listeners. I, I wanna say that, uh, May the memory of the victims of this massacre and what will happen in the coming days be for a blessing. May we all unite and we remember that it's not just the state of Israel, it's all our safety as Jews throughout the world, being able to practice being Jews. We've made it to 2023. We need to make it beyond. And it's up to all of us to help ensure that. So- well, I'm going to add one word, okay. uh, which is after such an event, I always believe that we have to change traditional language. 
and we want to say may their memory be a blessing and a warning. Excellent. Okay. Also a lesson. Okay, I agree. But so I will end this program like we say every time for our anti-Semitism podcast that we always say without putting yourself in danger, physical danger, please speak up against all hate and all anti-Semitism. Thank you.